Hey, good morning. My name is Emmeline, and I'm excited to read for you guys this morning. So our, readers, our scripture reading today is from Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 4, and it can be found on page 724 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. 724. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me among them, and behold, they were, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophecy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and I will cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and I prophesied, and there was a sound, behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath. Prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath. Breathe to these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophecy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I love baptisms. Uh, they're, they're some of my favorite things. Some of you know that a couple of, of weeks ago, Ashton and I returned from, from spending time with some middle school and high school students at, at a camp in Wisconsin, uh, and it was just an absolutely incredible uh, two weeks. I've talked with some of you about it already. It was just so clear that, that God was moving and, and working in the lives of, of teenagers around the country, and, and as a part of that experience, I actually had the opportunity of baptizing a number of students in the lake. And it's one of my favorite things. I literally cry every time that I talk students through that process. Because baptism is a sign that resurrection is happening. That new life is taking place. And this camp experience, baptisms, and, and everything else that God was doing just renewed my hope, personally, that God is continuing to raise up young people who seek after him. Amen? I've been a card of camps like that uh, for a long time. It's one of my favorite things. The camps have been some of the most significant and, and influential uh, experiences of my life. Uh, and when I was in college, I actually spent quite a bit of my free time at one particular camp uh, in southeast Kansas called Westminster Woods. We actually take our high school students there for, for fall retreat. We're going back there this November. But I loved Westminster Woods. 
And for a few summers in college, I actually served on staff for their, their summer programs. And one year, I, I was the speaker for the summer, and during the, the elementary kid weeks, we did this thing that we called uh, the Highland Games. And all that the Highland Games were, I saw Mark smile over there because he was there and he remembers it. All the Highland Games were were just one like big Scottish-themed competition. We had a ton of games and challenges and music and painting and dancing. Uh, it was awesome. It was a super fun time. But I, uh, an intellectual, was like, you know, there's one thing missing in this whole Highland Games thing. So I grabbed my blue face paint, I donned my best kilt, and I worked up just the worst Scottish accent. And I joined the party as William Wallace. I think I have a picture up here to, to prove to you that this did happen. And I just had way too much fun with it. I, all I would do was just walk up to kids and quote the same movie line over and over and over, just butchering the accent. That's all I did for like an hour of these games. They were so annoyed by the end of it. Uh, but I, I was having a great time. And the line I kept saying was probably the most famous line from, from the movie Braveheart, which is what, who William Wallace is, is from. And if you've seen the movie, you can probably guess right now what that line is. You're like, is he going to do the accent? No, I'm not going to do the accent. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Every man dies, but not every man really lives. Now, besides being just an iconic line that hits just right at that point in the movie, I think these words are so memorable because they resonate with the way that many of us make sense of the world. Of course, we know that, that every person dies at some point. That's an, an inevitable part of reality. But behind the idea of this phrase, it actually strikes a little bit of a deeper chord. I would venture to say that most of us at some point have wrestled with a question that goes kind of like this. Am I really alive? Am I really alive? Now, now of course, we know that we're breathing. But we wonder if maybe there's something more to living than simply breathing. Or as some of us feel maybe this morning, than simply surviving. We long for something more. A kind of living that, that has maybe purpose or, or meaning or, or vigor or that is connected to something that's greater than we are. We think, well, there has to be some way of being more fully alive than we feel most of our daily existence. There's got to be something we can do or be that can unlock another dimension to our lives that we just desperately hope is out there. You feel that this morning? Have you been there? Now, unknowingly, Wallace's phrase, this quote, resonates not only with our human experience, but, but also with the biblical witness. See, the authors of Scripture make at least this much clear across the pages of God's Word, that it is, it is possible to be living but not really be alive. It is possible to be living but not really be alive. In fact, as we're going to see this morning, they take it a step further. And they say it's possible to be physically alive and yet still dead. It's possible to be physically alive and still dead. So that question, am I really alive, is a really important one. In fact, I might suggest that it's the most important question that we can ask ourselves. 
And it might surprise you, but the answer to this question has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. The answer to this question has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. We began a series last week that we're calling the story of the Spirit. And here's the basic idea behind this story. As Christians, we believe that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And usually in church or in our small groups or the people that we talk to, we spend a lot of time talking about the first two, uh, the Father and the Son, but an unequal amount of time talking about the Spirit, talking about who He is, talking about what He, he does, how He relates to us uniquely. But because we believe that, that the Spirit is just as much God as the Father and Son, and just as important as the Father and Son, the next few weeks we're, we're looking at the story of the Spirit as told throughout the pages of the Bible and try to learn more about who He is, what He does, how He relates to us. And this morning, you might have heard when Emmeline read that scripture so beautifully for us, that we are in a place that we don't spend a lot of time in in church, the book of Ezekiel. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. But let me give just a little bit of background on uh, this book. Ezekiel is known as one of the major prophets. Uh, in the Bible, there are major prophets, there are, there are minor prophets, and being a major prophet doesn't mean he's more important than the other prophets. It just mean that his, means that his book is longer than the other prophets. So he was just like that kid in school that wrote five pages more than the teacher asked for, uh, which, no shame, I was that kid. Uh, and you're like, oh, now his sermons make sense. Why'd they go so long? So he's a major prophet, wrote a lot, and prophets were, were people who spoke on behalf of Yahweh uh, to the people of Israel. So often they would have these experiences where they would hear a word from God, and then they were to share that word with the people. Sometimes they were encouraging words that God had to say through them to the people, and sometimes, uh, more often than not, especially in the book of Ezekiel, they were not so encouraging words that God had to say to the people. And occasionally, these experiences of the prophets would be accompanied by, by dramatic encounters with God, uh, where they'd have some astounding vision, a picture, an image, or, or a scene that God shows them that, that illustrates a little bit of what God wants to say to his people. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, he seemed to have quite a few of these kinds of encounters. In fact, all you have to do is read chapter 1, and you'd be like, dude, I don't know what kind of drugs they had back then but you had to be on, like, all of them at once. Like, if there was ever a prophet who dropped acid, it was probably Ezekiel. Just saying. Now, joking aside, he had some pretty remarkable visions and experiences, and God asked him to do some pretty strange and hard things as his prophet. And that's what we see happening at the, the start of chapter 37 that Emma Lynn read for us. Ezekiel finds himself caught up in a vision that God is giving to him, to illustrate a word that he's supposed to say to the people of God. And already from the first verse of Ezekiel 37, we see the Spirit at work from the very start. Verse 1 tells us that it's the Spirit of the Lord who picks Ezekiel up and carries him into this vision. Often in the Bible, the Spirit of God is the person who's, who's responsible for the visions and words from God that are received by a prophet. And that's what's happening there. The Spirit picks Ezekiel up, drops him on the scene. And in this instance, he's dropped Ezekiel on a scene where he is in a valley that is covered with bones. A valley that's covered with bones. The picture we get is kind of like emerging from a bunker in an apocalyptic movie. The Spirit kind of brings him out and, and walks, takes some time to just walk him back and forth, it says, through the bones, among the heaps and heaps of bones. 
Like, dude, just take it all in. Get the full impact of what this tragic scene looks like. Take in the absolute wreckage and remains that you see. And as Ezekiel takes it all in, we see that he's kind of shocked, a little surprised by what he sees. Look what he observes in verse 2. It says, Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now, the word behold in these verses actually carries a sense of, of surprise. So he, he's, he's a little surprised at what he sees. The first thing, he says, I'm surprised he can't believe how many bones there are. How many people are represented in this pile of death? Like, it just looks like there's a great massacre that's taken place. Like, was this some battle from long ago that I'm getting dropped back into to look at? Like, what is this? But there's so many bones. He also can't believe how dry the bones are. He emphasizes, he goes out of his way to say that word very again, that they were very dry. Now, here's why this is important. You might pick up on this. The drier the bones, the longer they've been dead. The drier the bones, the longer they've been dead. So these bones are like super dead. This isn't a Monty Python, I'm not dead yet kind of situation. Don't get excited, that's also my Scottish accent. So, um, They aren't half dead. And it isn't even like an I've been dead a day or two kind of thing. No, the picture we get is that there is no chance that there is any fraction of life left in these bones. No chance. Commentator Daniel Block summarizes the intensity of this imagery well. Here's what he says. He says, the picture is one of death in all its horror, intensity, and finality. That's the vision that God shows to Ezekiel. Now, after he's gotten the full impact of the scene, God asks Ezekiel a question that to him and probably to us sounds kind of absurd. Here's what he says. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? live? What kind of question is that? Of course they can't live. I've seen how dry they are. They've been dead this long. Life is long gone. Not after how dead they are can they live. Ezekiel probably would have thought that was a pretty ridiculous question. But notice how he responds. Also verse 3, and I answered, O Lord God, you know. In other words, I can't see the way but I also can't count you out, God. It might seem impossible to me, but nothing is impossible for you. It's all up to what you want to do and what you're able to do. He puts the ball back in God's court. Can these bones live? And in the middle of what looks like just an absolutely desperate situation, God's question actually offers a glimmer of hope. Because asking the question that seems ridiculous, can these bones live, presents the possibility that the answer could be yes. And then what happens next is pretty cool. Because God actually invites Ezekiel to figure it out with him, to be an active part of the impossible thing that he's about to do. He tells Ezekiel, speak to the bones, to prophesy to them. In other words, he tells him to preach God's word at the bones, which probably wasn't fun. They can't say Amen. They can't laugh at his jokes or clap or anything. But what he's supposed to prophesy to the bones is that God will put them back together. 
that it will give them tendons and ligaments. It uses that word sinews, which I've never used in my life. Tendons and ligaments are what sinews are. Um, if you're a medical professional, maybe you know that already. He'd give them tendons and ligaments and flesh. And when he's done all of that, he says he will put breath back in them again, and they will live. So Ezekiel does it. He speaks on behalf of God. He prophesies that God will bring these bones back to life, flesh, tendons, ligaments, and all. And amazingly, it starts to happen. He says the first thing he hears is a rattling of bones. I love that. And they start zipping past him and linking together like those little magnetic sticks that kids play with attaching to each other with tendons and ligaments, and then being covered up with with flesh and skin. And all of a sudden, after Ezekiel says these words, in an instant, it looks like these bones are actually coming back to life, just like God has spoken. The impossible is happening. But then it all comes to a screeching halt. As close as they are to life, it seems like the prophecy has failed. Look at the end of verse 8. After all of this has happened, Ezekiel observes, but there was no breath in them. They have no breath. Now this is really important to, to make note of because without the breath, they are just as dead as they were before. They seem closer to life, they look closer to life, but they are dead all the same. The idea that comes through here is that the breath is absolutely vital for the revival to succeed. They need something to to come from outside of them to make them breathe and give them life. That's what they need. They're just as dead as they were before. And thankfully, God isn't finished with them yet. Here's what he says in verse 9. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. So now he started speaking to bones, now he's speaking to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Wow. The answer to the question, can these bones live, is a resounding yes but only after the breath comes like a rushing wind and breathes life into these restructured corpses. Because before that, they're just that. They're not bones, they're corpses, still dead. Only after the breath comes. Isn't this just a fascinating vision? Now the question has to be asked, why this vision? What does this image have to do with Ezekiel and with his people? And what, by virtue, does it have to do with us today? And God ends this section by by giving an explanation in verses 11 through 14 of of what this is all about. And I just want to spend the rest of our time unpacking the implications of these words that follow for our lives. Let's read together and start in verse 11. Here's how God explains it. It says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So we finally get an answer to what these bones represent. There are not just a massive army that got destroyed at some point in history. These bones represent all of Israel. All of them. 
See, what we need to understand is the background behind Ezekiel's writing. Ezekiel got called up to be a prophet at what might have been the worst moment in Israel's history up to that point. And you're like, really? Like slavery in Egypt? Like wandering through the desert? The worst moment? Yeah, I actually think it is. See, they had been brought by God into this land that he had given them. He'd made them into a nation. But the people had turned away from God. Instead, they started giving their hearts to idols and to other gods. They started seeking things that they thought would give them life in all the wrong places. And as a result, they had abandoned God. They had abandoned and rejected the source of life, and they suffered the consequences. They were exiled, cast out of the land that meant so much to their lives and faith and identity. They were living in exile. And as a result of that exile at the hands of the Babylonian Empire, many died. And those who lived were just scattered as exiles throughout Babylon. And just imagine that for a moment. If that happened to us. For them, it felt like all of the promises that God had given them were becoming undone. It felt like God had left them. Everything that meant something in their lives, their homes, their friends, their family, their temple, had disappeared. They were utterly hopeless, and they knew it. Like a pile of dead bones, cut off from the land, cut off from the source of all life. They realized that there was no way that they could get themselves out of the mess they were in, so they cried out to God and said, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost. By all accounts, even though they survived, and were living, they were basically dead. That's what's going on here. And in a place of such despair, listen to the resounding declaration of hope that Yahweh speaks over his dry and empty and desperate people. Listen to these words. He says, Therefore prophesy, now Ezekiel speaking to the people, and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. This is actually one of the moments in Ezekiel where his words are super encouraging. Wow, I will raise you from your graves. I will bring you back to the land you were just kicked out of. I'm going to make you alive. And the whole purpose of this new life, he says, is, is that you can have restored intimacy with me. He says, then you shall know that I am the Lord. So you can know me, so you can follow me faithfully once again, but I'm going to raise you from your graves and bring you back to life and to the land. Now, what's going to make all this happen? What is the thing that will truly bring these dead people back to life? Look at the end of this passage. Verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. What's the key to all of it? I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. See, the idea that we get is they are only really alive, even if they're back in the land, even if everything's rebuilt, they're only really alive when they receive the spirit. Like the bones that become bodies 
but that still don't have breath, without the Spirit, they're not really alive. They're just as dead. Now, the word used for spirit here is the Hebrew word ruach. And it's a, a Hebrew word that can mean three things, breath, wind, and spirit. And really interestingly, it's used all three ways in this passage. You heard, come gather the winds and breathe the breath of life. And then we have, I'll put my spirit in you, the spirit of the Lord. It's used in every way. So how do we make sense of all of that? Here's what I think we see happening. The spirit of God comes like a wind and breathes the breath of life into the dry bones. He is the agent who gathers the wind and directs just all of his life-giving energy on these bones so that they actually truly come to life. Which begins to answer the question that we asked at the very beginning of our time together. If we see one thing in this passage this morning, I think it has to be this, that we are not really alive until we receive the Spirit. You and I, we are not really alive until we receive the Spirit. Now, that statement assumes quite a few things. First, it assumes the fact that we are, in fact, dead. That we are dead, even if we're physically alive. That even though we might be walking and talking and breathing physically alive, there's another sense in which we are just like Israel, surviving but dead. And in fact, this is exactly how the Bible describes the human problem. For example, Paul in Ephesians 2 will say it like this. As for you, you were what? dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, what is true of the people of Israel as a whole is broadened to the entirety of humanity, that when we are cut off from God, we are cut off from life. When we are under the reign of sin, when we follow a spirit other than the spirit of God, we are as good as dead. And as we look at all, all around at the, the problems that we're facing in our world today, it feels like those have just been heightened and heightened in our senses recently. We were just bombarded with ideas of what the root of our problems is, right? We, we point fingers, we shout at others, we cite statistics. We're not at a lack of suggestion of the cause of all of our issues, right? But the Christian narrative says that beneath all of those things, many of which are important and need to be addressed, beneath all of those things lies the basic issue that we are cut off from God. We are alienated from him. We are dead. In the grand scheme of things, you and I, apart from Jesus, are no better than a lifeless body. Everything else that we see in our world, that's a symptom of this basic reality that apart from God, we aren't really alive. If you wanted to rephrase William Wallace in the language of the biblical authors, you could say it this way, and no, still not doing the accent. Every person is dead, but not every person finds true life. Every person is dead, but not every person finds true life. Because the story of the Spirit shows us that we are not really alive until we receive the Spirit himself. Now that statement also assumes this, that we can't revive ourselves. Has anyone seen that Chris Farley with the trying to resuscitate himself? Anyone? Just me? Okay. We can't revive ourselves, which is something we need to hear. 
Because when asking the question, am I really alive? We often look high and low to see if there's something that we can do in our efforts to seize the life that is truly life. We look all around us to try to figure out what can make us really alive. And and potential answers, again, surround us. We're at no lack for those either. Two in particular hold a dominant sway in our time. First, some would say that to have this kind of life, we need to be moral. Do what is right, be good, and then you'll be really alive. To be honest, some of you might be at church this morning because that's what you think. That I have to be good, and if I'm good enough, if I live a moral life, that's what it means to really live. Now, others would say that to have this life, what we need to do is be authentic. You have to fully discover your true, authentic self and live as true to that as possible. And when you get there, when you figure that out, when you're as true to yourself as you can possibly be, that's when you're really alive. Now, there are nuggets of truth in both of those things. But the biblical authors tell us this. You can live the most moral life possible. You can be as true to yourself as possible, but the reality is you are still dead. Which means we can't do it. We can't revive ourselves. This passage in Ezekiel 37, it's not self-help. It's not 12 easy steps to bringing your dry bones back to life today. Just like the bones in Ezekiel's vision, we need someone outside of us to make us alive. We can't do it by being good. We can't do it by finding our authentic selves or whatever else it is you look to for life. Those things, they might put tendons on our bodies. They might put some flesh on our bones. But none of them solve the ultimate problem that we are dead in our sin, cut off from God, alienated from the source of life. We cannot revive ourselves because the story of the Spirit shows us that we are not really alive until we receive the Spirit himself. Now here's the last thing this statement assumes. It's kind of the other side of the same coin. Only the Spirit can revive us. Only the Spirit can revive us. Only the Spirit can breathe new life into dead things into dead people, into dead places. Only the Spirit can breathe new life and revive us. All over Scripture, if you you read the pages of Scripture back to back, what might be the most common thread in the story of the Spirit is that word life. We saw it last week, if you were with us, in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where the Spirit is responsible for breathing the, the breath of life into Adam and Eve. We see it here in this story where we're twice Earlier, God said, I will put my breath in you, you will live. I'll put my breath in you, you will live. Then later he says, I'll put my spirit in you, you will live. We see it in the New Testament in places like 1 Corinthians, where Paul calls the spirit, the spirit who gives life. The spirit who gives life. In other words, like that's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he gets out of bed for in the morning, is to bring new life. The spirit who gives life. And we see it ultimately in the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, which we are told is done by the power of the Spirit. Did you know that? That it was the Spirit of God who raised Jesus to new life? Here's how Scott McKnight summarizes Scripture's witness about the Spirit's life-giving power. He says, wherever there is life, there is the Spirit. And without the Spirit who is life itself, there is no life. In other words, the Spirit is in the resurrection business. 
He loves to breathe new life into dead people. He loves to give fresh hope to desperate people. He loves reviving dry people. The Spirit gives life. And in fact, he's the only one that can. Because we're not really alive until we receive the Spirit himself. Now the passage in Ezekiel closes with this incredible promise. God says, I have spoken and I will do it. I have spoken and I will do it. What a promise. And he did. Israel eventually was restored to the land. Their temple was rebuilt. They were back to trying to figure out what it meant to to follow the law well, to seek after God better so that, that they wouldn't be kicked out of the land again. But they were brought back. God restored them. They were able to return to him. But for a long time, that promise of the Spirit still hadn't come. They were waiting because the prophets like Ezekiel had assured them it's going to happen, but they waited over 400 years. And God still hadn't poured out his Spirit in that way among his people. Until Jesus came. And there's this famous moment in the Gospels where Jesus encounters a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a hyper-religious guy, a Pharisee, a faithful Jew, a good person. He knew the scriptures well. He was well-respected by the people around him. But listen what Jesus has to say to him. John 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now first, notice all of the imagery that Jesus uses here. Talking about the Spirit, the wind blowing where it will. Like Jesus is pointing Nicodemus back to Ezekiel, a book that a Hebrew scholar should know very well. And Nicodemus is like, what? Born a second time? Like, do I have to get back into my mom and be born again? That sounds like it would hurt. And at my size, that's probably a C-section. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? See, Nicodemus thought that he was already as alive as he could be through his moral living, his social standing, and his obedience to the law. He thought he was alive. But Jesus said, man, you need something more. You are not really alive until you receive the Spirit. Now here's the thing. That's actually good news for Nicodemus. And it's good news for you, and it's good news for me. Because here's what Jesus was also saying in that moment. I'm here to give the Spirit. I'm the guy that's making Ezekiel's promises come true. That time he was talking about, it's here. I have the power of the spirit of life in me. That's why I'm doing all these miracles. That's why all this other stuff is happening in my life. I have the power of the spirit of life in me and I am going to breathe him into anyone who comes to me. That time is here. I'm going to give you the spirit. This is really, really important. See, Jesus, he didn't just come to heal sick people. He didn't just come to comfort sad people or teach ignorant people or to be an example to wayward people, to perform miracles for skeptical people or to speak to oppressive people. No, Jesus came to raise dead people. 
Amen? That's the whole point. To bring them back to life by giving them the very spirit that would bring him back to life. And after Jesus is raised, there's a moment where he appears to the disciples at the end of that book of John, and the long-expected promise finally begins to happen. Look at me with John, at John 20, 22. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. That's the command. That's the invitation. No matter where you are this morning sitting in these pews, all we have to do to find our spirits revived for the first or hundredth time is open ourselves up to receiving the Spirit. Open yourself up to receiving the Spirit. Now you might be here this morning and you're just like the Israelites. You're dead and you know it. You've seen the dry bones in your life. You know you are cut off from God. You know there's no way for hope unless a spirit is placed within you, a new heart. And maybe you're someone who's been coming to church and and participating kind of halfway. Maybe you can become because you were raised that way. It's the right thing to do. But you've been resisting for a long time the pull of the spirit in your heart. You might even be hoping that you can make it just one more week escaping out those doors without opening yourself up to the opportunity of Jesus breathing new life in you for the first time. Like, maybe I can just make it one more week. And maybe you're here in this room, I think this might be a lot of us, and you've experienced the revival of the Spirit in your life before. You've been born again. You follow Jesus. But you've felt yourself slowly deaden over time. To slowly deaden yourself toward God. You feel dry. You feel empty. You wonder what has happened in your life to bring you to the place that you are. Maybe you're going through the motions of life, but that's about it. You feel utterly dead inside. Here's the thing. You could be a heap of bones convinced there's no hope. You could be a breathless body convinced that you're alive. You can be with us today and you hear the rattling of bones this morning, the rushing wind and the voice of Jesus calling you to life. But wherever you are, listen right now. It does not matter how dead you are, how far you are, how much you've turned away, how much you doubt, how hopeless you are, how abandoned you feel. God's spirit wants to breathe new life into you today. He wants to breathe new life into you today wherever you are on that spectrum or things that I didn't name. The only question is, will you receive it? Will you receive the Spirit of God? See, the question, can these bones live? That's a question for you. That's a question for me this morning. And thanks to Jesus, if we receive the Spirit, the answer is emphatically, yes, they can live. Friends, only the Spirit can revive you. Only the Spirit can breathe new life into your dry bones. And let me tell you what happens when he does. You are ushered into the kingdom of God. You begin to live a new kind of life now, not then. It's not just new life in the future. It's new life now. 
You live a new kind of life, a life that is filled with the Spirit, a life that is animated by the Spirit, a life where you are walking in step with what the Spirit is doing. And we're going to spend some time in future weeks talking about what that looks like. But the point is, you have eternal life now. Not then, now. That same vibrant life and resurrection power lives in you, surges through you. And the Spirit continues to breathe new life when you are deadened, when you're drying out, when you're despairing. He continues to want to reinvigorate your spirit that he's already renewed when you are weak or failing. And one day, when your physical body is long dead, dead as a doornail, God's spirit is going to reach down to you just like he did with Jesus and grab you up out of that grave and raise you to a new kind of life in a new kind of body that can never die again. That's the story of the Spirit. The Spirit who gives life. Amen? What I want to do right now is I want to pray for us. But I want to pray in a little bit of a different way. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'll pray some words over us. And as you hear them, pray those same words in your heart. Maybe from wherever you are at, wherever you would answer kind of where you're at this morning, dry, dead, alive. Pray these, pray these words in your heart. And then I'm going to say at the end of, of uh, after a few words, spirit in your power. And I'd love if everyone at the same time could say, bring these bones to life. And then I'll pray something else and I'll say, spirit in your power. And let's all say, breathe these bones to life. Does that make sense? Can we do that? Would you pray with me? <sighs> spirit of the living God, you are the source of all life. You hovered over the waters at the foundation of the world, and you sustain the fabric of creation in your almighty power. It is your breath that fills our lungs, and with that same breath, we cry out to you right now, asking that you would draw near to us and breathe afresh in your people this morning, filling us with your powerful presence. We yearn for you to do something new in our hearts. God, breathe life where there is death. Breathe hope where there is despair this morning. Breathe peace where there is anxiety in this room. And breathe comfort where there is pain in our hearts. Spirit, in your power, bring these bones to life. Spirit of the living God, all around us, we see lifeless bones. In ourselves, in our friends, in the world around us. And God, we know that the world is not as it should be. We know that you are, are recreating and renewing the brokenness that we see. And Spirit, this morning, we pray that your renewing work would begin with us. We repent of the ways that we have sought life anywhere that is not in you. Help us honestly acknowledge the places in our lives that remain dead. Convict us of the sin that still has a stronghold in our hearts. And give us eyes to see that you are with us. And give us hearts to trust that even though we may feel like a heap of bones, you are not finished with us yet. Spirit, in your power, bring these bones to life. Spirit of the living God, we pray right now for our brothers and sisters sitting around us. We pray for those of us in this room who right now are completely cut off from you. Those who might know you, but, but know of you, but don't truly know you. 
In your mercy, would you awaken them this morning to see Jesus clearly for the first time? Breathe the breath of life in them so that they may find new life for the first time and receive the joy of the kingdom. Spirit, in your power, bring these bones to life. We also pray for those who have tasted new life before but have found themselves slowly becoming more deadened to your presence in their lives, who feel totally dry and disconnected from you. In your mercy, would you wash over them this morning and revive their weary spirits so that they may rediscover the spirit-filled life again. Spirit, in your power, bring these bones to life. We also pray for those of us in the pews around us who feel dead because they've been crushed by the weight of the suffering in their life, who sit here surviving but, but find themselves utterly hopeless. In your mercy, would you reinvigorate their desperate hearts, bind up their wounds, and give them a new hope that only you can give. Spirit, in your power, bring these bones to life. We also pray for those of us who have received your spirit before, but have grieved him, quenched him, resisted his work in their lives. In your mercy, open their hearts to receive the spirit anew this morning so that they could be aware of your work in their lives and obedient to your voice and guidance as you change them to become more like Jesus. Spirit in your power, bring these bones to life. We also pray for, for those in this room who feel like they're living fully in the new life you've given them. They see you working in their lives. They're walking in step with you daily. They're living by your strength regularly. Spirit, we pray that you would continue to fan into flame the fire you have set in their hearts, that they would live lives that are dynamically empowered by you. In your mercy, mold them and use them for the mission of God in the world, that all would look to Jesus and find the life that is really life. Spirit, in your power, bring these bones to life. Spirit of the living God, Our hearts ache this morning for our brothers and sisters around the world, especially in Afghanistan, who are facing persecution and death for the sake of Jesus. Thank you for using their example of faithfulness to give new vigor to our faith. And we pray that you would powerfully protect them, draw near to them right now, heal their hurts, comfort their fears, give them continued boldness to hold fast to the name of Jesus. And we pray also for those who have already been slain for their faith. Spirit of life, please multiply their efforts beyond their final breath, that the seeds they planted would be harvested in many in Afghanistan who continue to come to find new life in you. Spirit, in your power, bring these bones to life. Spirit of the living God, finally, we just pray for your people as a whole, for this group of gathered believers in this room, for your churches across the city and country and world. We see the lifeless bones in the world around us. We see the evil that fills the world that doesn't seem to stop. And it's hard not to lose all hope in your kingdom and sometimes even in your church. Spirit, please blow mightily on your people around the globe and revive your church so that we might make you known in our time. Stir revival in our city. Set our hearts ablaze for you so that your people would carry the good news of new life with them wherever they go, scattered around the city, and the name of Jesus would be lifted up above all names. Spirit, in your power, 
bring these bones to life. We pray this in the name that carries authority to bring healing, wholeness, and renewal to the world and to our hearts, the name of Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit who raised him from the dead and lives in each of us. Amen. Well, every week here at the Brookside campus, we take some time to respond to what we've heard, and there are a few ways that we respond. Um, First, we we respond by singing some songs. Casey and the band are going to lead us in a couple of songs of response that are centered around this theme of new life in the Spirit. We also respond every week by receiving communion. Communion is just a celebration that reminds us that the reason we can have new life is because of Christ's death. So I invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, even for the first time, if, if that rushing wind breathed into you this morning, you'd say, I have new life today. Please come and join us at the table. Hopefully you got um, little packets on the way, and if not, they're in the back. Feel free to get up and grab them. But I deliver to you what I also received, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after blessing it, he gave it to them and said, drink of this, all of you, For this cup is the cup of new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Truly, I tell you, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.